Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, it is a joy to welcome you today to our spring 2023 convocation service, but it is especially my uh, joy and delight to recognize and honor today uh, one of the dearest friends I ever had, uh, Dr. Logan Carson. Uh, we are blessed today to have a number of his family uh, and friends here. In fact, there's a group down here, but I've also seen a number of you that slipped in and are scattered throughout the auditorium. So let me just say this. Uh, if you indeed count yourself uh, as a family member or a friend of the family and you knew personally Dr. Logan Carson, would you please stand at this time so that we might see you and recognize you and say thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. When it came time for us to uh, make a decision about renaming our main academic building, uh, I literally was flooded with recommendations, but something amazing about those recommendations, uh, they were all about the same person, Logan Carson. And so we brought that before our faculty. Uh, there was not a dissenting voice. We brought that to our trustees. It was a unanimous decision. Uh, Dr. Carson uh, was a remarkable man in so many ways, uh, born blind, uh, born uh, black, uh, at a time when being a black man was not uh, in your favor and being blind, uh, that counted as two strikes against him in most people's eyes. Uh, he was told that uh, he would never really amount to anything, but uh, he knew better. And so he trusted the Lord Jesus as a teenager, since God's calling to be a pastor, uh, went to Shaw uh, University, would later go to Hartford, a very liberal school, but as he says, the only reason I went there, it was the closest seminary to where I was living in New York. Later he would go to an equally liberal seminary, uh, the Presbyterian Seminary in Louisville. I remember talking to him on a number of occasions and he said, well, you know, we all need to learn how to eat the meat and spit out the bones, and I got an education that very, very early. He would then later go to the mission field, uh, return and do a PhD uh, at Drew University. Uh, he would then serve at Gardner-Webb University for more than two decades, and then in God's good providence in 1994, he came, to here, came here uh, to teach at Southeastern where he would teach for 15 years, and even after his retirement, uh, he would regularly uh, frequent my office uh, just to talk with me and to pray with me and to encourage me, and I have never in my life had a greater encourager than Logan Carson. And I miss him dearly. Uh, as we were singing that first uh, hymn, which I know was a favorite of his, I can remember in my mind him saying at the end, uh, that's the point. And uh, he then, if you ever had the joy of preaching here when he was here, let me just say, uh, he would preach you to death. Uh, he was always talking to you. If you weren't doing a very good job in a gracious sort of a way, he would point that out, try to encourage you to lift it up a little bit higher. And I want to tell you, I miss him. 
because most of you folks sit there like a dead log. That's the point, you got that right. You hardly say anything, even when the preacher is doing a good job. So I'm very grateful that his family or friends are here today because perhaps they will help me along the way in ways that most of you will not. Now, we are beginning in this fall, our spring semester, a series through the book of Psalms. And when we determined to do that back many months ago, uh, I prayed about it and thought, well, it makes sense to begin our study through the book of Psalms with Psalm 1. And then last night and again this morning as I was going over the passage, I thought how kind God is in his providence. Because if there is a passage of scripture that reflects the life of Logan Carson, it is Psalm 1. So if you would join me there in the first Psalm, uh, a passage that I've simply entitled, The Life of a Righteous Man, or What Do You Do When You Come to a Fork in the Road? Psalm 1, this is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lawrence Peter Yogi Berra is one of the greatest catchers and baseball players of all time. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1972. He was a 15-time All-Star, American League MVP three times, he played in 14 World Series with the New York Yankees. He is a member of baseball's all-century team. And in addition to all of his accomplishments in baseball, he joined the Navy at 18, participated in the D-Day invasion at Omaha Beach in World War II. And some of you might know, he even has a cartoon character named after him, Yogi Bear. But he is also very well known among those who are not even fans of baseball for what are known as his yogiisms. And indeed, he is one of the most quoted personalities in the 20th century. For example, uh, Yogi Berra said, he's the one that made it famous, it ain't over till it's over. I really didn't say everything I said. Never answer an anonymous letter. Now just reflect on that for a moment and you'll understand the wisdom of that. He also said of a restaurant that was always filled in St. Louis, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. And he said, always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise they won't come to yours. <laughs> but perhaps the one that I think is the most valuable of all of these interesting sayings when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Well, 
It is certainly true, brothers and sisters, that when you come to a fork in the road, you must take it. And life indeed confronts us, does it not, with all sorts of forks in the road. For example, where will I go to school? Will I marry or remain single? Who will I marry? Will we have children? How many children will we have? And I would say perhaps most importantly of all, will I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior or not? And related to that, when I die, will it be heaven or will it be hell? No, each of us faces circumstances and situations in life that confront us with decisions with forks in the road. And gratefully, our good God has given us a compass, a, a guide so that when we come to those forks in the road, we will make the right decisions. We will choose the right road, the road that is best. Indeed, as the Bible says in Psalm 1, the road that is blessed. And I might quickly add, it is the road that the great king, the anointed son of Psalm 2, chose to walk down. Now, in our text, we are confronted with two men, two roads, and two destinies. We are exposed to them so that we might see just how important it is to choose the right road when we come to those forks in life. Eugene Peterson has colorfully paraphrased Psalm 1 this way. I think it's instructive for us to read this morning. How well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You don't slink along dead-end road. You don't go to Smart Mouth College. Instead, you thrill to God's Word. You chew on Scripture day and night. You're like a tree replanted in Eden, bearing fresh fruit every month, never dropping a leaf, always in blossom. You're not at all like the wicked who are mere window dust, without a defense in court, unfit company for innocent people. God knows the road you take, but the road of the wicked is like skid row. So when you come to a fork in the road, what is the wisdom that we receive from Psalm 1? Two truths to guide us this morning. Number one, pursue the life that pleases God. Pursue the life that pleases God. Psalm 1 in many ways serves as an introduction to the entire Psalter, all 150 Psalms. James Boyce, who pastored for many years in Philadelphia, said, it stands as a magnificent gateway to this extraordinary ancient collection of Hebrew religious verse. It is a text which the remaining Psalms are essentially an exposition. But I also like the fact that uh, the NIV Study Bible rightly in my mind makes a connection with Psalm 1 and also Psalm 2. In fact, one of my colleagues at Southeastern in my first years here as president uh, was John Selhammer, an absolutely outstanding and brilliant Old Testament scholar in his own right. And he used to say to me, always read Psalm 2 in connection with Psalm 1. Why? Well, this is what the NIV Study Bible says. The first two Psalms of Book 1, Psalm 1 through 41, introduces most of the great themes of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 is the blessed man. Psalm 2 is the great king and the anointed son who is that man. 
of Psalm 1. The Proverbs man par excellence. And so it is a wisdom psalm, a very practical psalm reminiscent of the book of Proverbs. And what this psalm simply does is it draws a contrast between two men, two roads, and two approaches to life. One is what we can call the blessed road. The other is what we can call the disastrous road. And those who follow after the ungodly, the sinners, the scornful, are those who follow the disastrous road. Now, here's what we're going to see in these verses. The author of Psalm 1 wants to provide for us a road of wisdom. And he wants us to understand. Now, listen to me. Wisdom is not only knowing what to say yes to. Wisdom also involves what you say no to. And here in this psalm, he tells us three things that we are to say no to. First of all, he says, don't walk with the wicked. He begins there in verse 1. Blessed is the man. The word blessed means supremely happy, uh, rewarding. How fulfilling is the life of this man, of this woman? And he begins by telling us they are blessed because they don't walk with the wicked. They don't follow in their counsel. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, seeing that such persons are few upon the earth, the psalmist breaks forth suddenly and says, blessed is the man who is wise enough to walk in this way. Now, don't miss the progression that we see here in verse 1. They are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, they do not stand in the way of sinners, nor do they sit in the seat of scoffers or of mockers. In other words, they move from association to identification to fixation. In other words, they begin with people that you just simply have an acquaintance with. They then become people that you hang out with and finally, they are people that you stay with, that you live with. They are the people that you occupy your time and your attention. So he begins by saying, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. By the way, the wicked are mentioned four times in this particular psalm. And he speaks here of people that will shape your conduct. Uh, people who will impact you, people who will begin to influence you. You see, here's the fact of the matter, brothers and sisters. You don't move from A to Z overnight. You walk down the alphabet, B, C, D, E, and then one day you wind up in a place that when you were at point A, you would have never dreamed that you would ever be there doing the things you're doing. You didn't jump there. You drifted there. Step by step, moment by moment. John Calvin said, and I quote, it is difficult for us to separate ourselves from the wicked with whom we are mixed up. How, how men are inclined to turn aside to the wrong way little by little. So the psalmist says it starts with a, a walk, a mere association with people for whom the things of God matter little if they matter at all. And so he says, be careful where you go. Be wise who you regularly walk with. Not all advice, not all counsel is good advice. Don't walk in the counsel of 
the wicked. Secondly, don't stand with sinners. The idea of standing there in verse 1 carries the idea of, of staying a while, stopping to look and listen, not just hanging around them, but also hanging out with them. And he says, you do not stand in the way or in the path of sinners, those who miss God's mark. And since it is their path, it is also, we could say, their, their habit of life. They're in a habit of standing on the opposite side of God. In other words, now because you are hanging out with people like this, rather than taking a stand for God and the Lord Jesus, you take your stand in a different place. You, you stand in opposition to him. Uh, on Sunday, my son Nathan preached at Open Door Baptist Church. And he began his message using an illustration that he did not tell the congregation to the end uh, was about his dad. You know, you never realize the stories you tell your kids that they hang on to and the stories that make an impact, but, but this one obviously did. Because I had shared with my boys that there was an occasion when I was a senior in high school. We were sitting in the cafeteria having lunch, and one of my friends who was known for his walk with the Lord shared with us that they were having a revival at his church and he would like to encourage some of us to come with him. And uh, some of the folks at the table laughed and um, I jumped up and said, well, you know, Gary, I'm a Christian too. And one of my best friends sitting right beside me said, B.S., you're no more a GD Christian than I am. And I actually uttered a curse word myself and tried to make a joke out of it. But on the inside, I felt like I had been ripped apart with a knife. Because, you see, I was a Christian. I trusted the Lord as a 10-year-old boy. But over the years, gradually, slowly, drifting, I moved further and further and further away from him so that by the time I was 18 years old, nobody knew that I was a follower of Jesus. No, the Bible tells us that you need to be careful who you walk with. And the Bible says you need to be careful where you stand. But then he moves to the final point and he says, but don't sit with fools, nor does he sit in the seat of the scoffers. You have moved from thinking like the wicked to living like the rebellious to ridiculing the things of God like a cynic. The way of life, that way of life is now your home. This is where you sit. This is where you are comfortable. The things of God, they don't matter to you. In fact, you mock as fools those who do think the things of God matter. That word translated scoffers is translated scoffer, uh, mocker, the scornful. It describes the self-sufficient, prideful person. The person who says, I don't need God. I'll just live life my way. And those who do live for God, they laugh at them. They look down upon them. They blow them off and pay them no mind. And it has been well said that the scoffer is often that person with a quick wit and a sharp tongue. 
And yet the Bible has a word for them. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 24, a proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. Proverbs 15, 2, a scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. Proverbs 3, 33 through 35, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of the fool. Peter Kraft has well said, we are whatever we love. And the psalmist warns us, be careful what you love and know what you need to say no to. But then secondly, not only does he tell us you need to know what to say no to, you also need to know what to say yes to. And there are three things that he addresses for us as to what we say yes to in verse 2 and verse 3. He says, first of all, say yes to God's word. Look at what it says there in verse 2. In contrast to the wicked and sinners and scoffers, the righteous man, the blessed man, he delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That word delight means he takes joy. Uh, this is what makes me happy. Uh, this is where I get my pleasure. And his delight, he says, is in the law of the Lord. Here, the law of the Lord is simply a shorthand or a synonym for the love of the word of God. In other words, this person, the blessed person, loves the word of God. He loves the Bible. It's a joy to him, not a burden. He wants to learn it, and he also wants to live it. I mentioned a moment ago that I, I did not walk with the Lord as a teenager, uh, but when I was 19 years old, you know, the Bible says the, the Lord chastens whom he loves and he disciplines uh, every son. And if you be without discipline, when you sin, you're illegitimate and not a true son. Well, I discovered when I was 19 that I was a legitimate son because the Lord disciplined me in a most severe way. Uh, in fact, I was out uh, working out. Uh, I was going to college to play baseball. Uh, working out with a friend of mine that would later be a three-time All-American at West Georgia, second-round draft choice with the San Diego Padres and play about six years in the major leagues. And I was a left-handed pitcher, and while I was throwing the ball to him, he had a line drive back at me that I will just say hit me in a very tender place uh, of the male body. I dropped to my knees, broke into a cold sweat, started throwing up gastric juice, and spent more than a month on my back, in my bed. But I'm grateful, though it was painful, that God loved me enough to discipline me to get my attention. And by the way, this is for free. It's not in my notes. <laughs> but God is a good daddy. He really is. And when he needs to get your attention, he'll start gently. He, he will. When I was a little boy, I, I used to love to go to church uh, and when we had the Lord's Supper, sit with my grandmother because my grandmother would always slip me a piece of that bread and the juice cup. My parents were not sweet and godly and they would not let me have it. 
because I was not yet a Christian. Actually, they were doing the right thing. But you know, grandparents are wonderful. They let you get away with all sorts of stuff, and they feel no guilt about it. And so my grandmother would always let me have a, a little cracker, and she'd slip me some of the juice. And furthermore, when I would sit with her, she would let me get away with things that my, my parents would not let me get away with. But even grandmothers and granddaddies uh, have their limits. And so as a rambunctious little boy, I'd be there doing the things that rambunctious little boys do. And my grandmother would reach over and pat me on the leg. And that was her way of saying, now, you, you, you need to stop. But I knew she wasn't serious yet. So I'd just keep on doing my stuff. And a few minutes later, she would reach over and grab a little tighter and look at me and shake her head. And she, she was saying, you need to stop. But again, we had not reached the limit yet. So I continued to do what I was doing, and a few minutes later, her arm would move around to the back of my neck. And I'll tell you something, my grandmother could have been a world champion in wrestling. <laughs> because she had a nerve hold, and she began to take my neck right there and clamp down. I believe her fingers touched as she grabbed the hold. And now, Grandmama was saying, that's it. We're done, no more. Now, she started off gently. But she moved to being uh, more difficult in her discipline, just like God will. Yeah. And so God was pretty rough with me, but I'm grateful that he did because a few months later, on a retreat up in the North Georgia mountains, I recommitted my life to Christ. And, and I know maybe some of you are here this morning like me. In many ways, my recommitment was more life-changing than my conversion. I was older, I understood things better, and I just have to tell you, when I was 19 years old and I recommitted my life to Christ, I really fell in love with Jesus all over again. And I fell in love with his Bible, his word, in a way that I never had before. And so I went out, I brought it over this morning. I went out and I bought me an original, not the new one, the original Schofield reference Bible. I mean, the real deal here, the full metal jacket, here it is. And I, it's all like this now. But I took it, and some friends that began to disciple me said, you know that uh, when you come across something in that Bible that you really like, you need to start uh, just underlining it and just start marking it. And so I did. And here's Ephesians, for example. If you were to look at it, every single verse is either underlined or marked because I liked it all. <laughs> I just thought what I was reading was the most unbelievable Incredible, and I was like, how in the world did I miss this all these years as a teenager? No, the, the righteous man, the blessed man, the man that's moving in the direction of Jesus, the word of God, he can't get enough. He just loves it, delights in it. It becomes everything to him. And this is what the Bible says that we need to say yes to. But then he moves on and said, but you also need to say yes to God's wisdom. Yes, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it, he meditates day and night. That word meditates means to think over by talking to yourself. It has the idea of, of pondering, of weighing carefully. And in many ways, I suspect the psalmist was thinking back to what God said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. 
for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. This is the person, again, that is preoccupied with the Word of God and is consumed by it. You say, why? Why does this thing look like this? Well, not only would I take this to church, I'm just sharing a testimony. I was in junior college at that time, but every day I'd go to junior college taking my Bible. I know people thought I was crazy. They thought I was a fanatic. But you know what? At that particular time in my life, I didn't give a rip. I didn't care because I had so fallen in love with Jesus and his word. And by the way, if you ever had a chance to be around Logan Carson, you knew a man that absolutely had fallen madly in love with his Savior and the word of God. In fact, he used to say, I remember being at his funeral. Some brought it up that he said, I'm not upset that I'm blind. Because the first thing I'll see when I get to heaven will be my Savior. And that's how he looked at life, because he so trusted his Savior and so loved his word. So we say yes to God's word and we say yes to God's wisdom, but we also say yes to God's will. He says in verse 3, here's the will of God for the man who loves the word of God and meditates on it and lives it. He's like a tree planted by streams of water and they yield its fruit in its season and its leaf, oh, it does not wither. In fact, in all that he does, he will prosper. In other words, this is the man who trusts God to plant him, and this is the one who trusts God to prosper him as well. And if you take the reverse of these first three verses and then, or verse, first two verses and then add in verse three, here's what you can say about the prosperous life. Number one, the prosperous life, he walks in the counsel of the godly. The prosperous life, he stands in the path of the righteous. The prosperous life, he sits in the seat of the hopeful. The prosperous life, he studies the word. He acts with wisdom. He is devoted to the will of God. And he experiences what Jesus says in John 10, 10, is the abundant life. And so the Bible says, pursue the life that pleases God. But then secondly, Verses 4 through 6, it says, run from the life that displeases God. And what we see in verses 4 through 6 is the life that displeases God, the life of the wicked, the life of the sinners, the life of the scoffers. It is a useless life. It is a senseless life. And it is a hopeless life. Verse 4. The wicked are not like the man who delights in the word of God. He's not like this tree that prospers. No, the wicked are not so, but rather they are like chaff that the wind drives away. This would have been, of course, a very familiar scene to anyone in that part of the world. Harvest time comes, they would go out to the threshing floor and they would see the corn or the, the wheat being threshed and winnowed and they would throw it up into the air and, and the wheat would come back down, but the chaff, just dust in the wind, it would be blown away, gone away, not to be seen anymore. Why? Because it was useless. There's no value in chaff. And this is the kind of life that does not delight in the word of the Lord. But not only that, 
He says it is a senseless life. Verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor will they stand, that is, sinners in the congregation of the righteous. His point is simply this. Every one of us is going to stand before God someday and give an account. And if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and if the things of God matter nothing to you, to say it as we would today, you, don't, you will not have a leg to stand on. You'll have no defense. You'll have nothing to say because you have lived a life that is senseless, a life that is foolish. But then he says, this is also a life that is hopeless. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And the idea there is he knows that way intimately. He knows that person personally. He indeed has a close, intimate knowledge of who you are, where you are, and what you're doing. In contrast, the way of the wicked, that is the way that will perish. Harry Ironside was for many years the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. In fact, from 1929 to 1948. And in his writings, he tells the story of a converted Jew named Joseph Flax, who on a continuous basis would make his way into Israel and seek to evangelize and bring to faith in Christ uh, fellow Hebrews. And on one occasion, he was addressing a group of Jews and Arabs. And he took as the source of his address Psalm one. And as he moved toward the end of his teaching, he asked them this question. So who do you think is the blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? Who is the man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked? He never stood in the way of sinners, and he never sat in the seat of mockers. We could say he appears to be a sinless man. Nobody spoke. So Flax continued. Could this man be our great father, Abraham? But an old Jewish man stood up and said, No, it cannot be Abraham, for he denied his wife and he told a lie about her. He said, Well, could it be our great father and lawgiver, Moses? And again, someone stood and said, no, it cannot be Moses. He killed a man. He lost his temper by the waters of Meribah. Flax said, well, what about David? Oh, no. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And so there was a period of silence when finally a Another elderly Jewish man arose and said, and I quote, My brothers, I have a little book here. It is called the New Testament. I have been reading it for many years. And if I could believe this book, if I could be sure that it was true, I would say that the man of the first psalm is Jesus of Nazareth.
you should believe the book. The book is true. Psalm 1 is a perfect portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul can say, be imitators of me as I am what? Imitators of Christ. May we seek to follow in the footsteps of the man of Psalm 1. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful psalm that indeed opens the door for the other 149 psalms of the hymn book of the nation of Israel and the hymn book of God's people. And I thank you that in Psalm 1, we do see a perfect, beautiful, glorious portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I also thank you that I saw Psalm 1 lived out beautifully in the man Logan Carson. I thank you, Lord, that I never saw him act unkindly to anyone. I never saw anyone that loved your word more than he did and that had an intimate, passionate love affair with the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the way I saw him love his wife, Miss Pep, his children, his students. And Lord, the Bible says we should give honor to whom honor is due. And I'm thankful that today we will get to honor him as well because he so resembled the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of Psalm 1. Lord, I thank you for these students that you brought to Southeastern. And it is my prayer that they will glean the wisdom of this psalm. Be careful who they hang out with. Be careful who they sit with. Be careful whom they receive counsel from. Because not all counsel is good counsel. But there's one source we can always trust. Your precious word. So thank you for how you have given us a compass to guide us. May we use that compass every single day that we might indeed be blessed men and women who follow hard after Jesus. For we pray in his name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.